Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell, along with longtime newsman, who's still young, Randall Carlyle. I'm not young anymore, but I did dress up today. You are looking you, very You spiffy. have mocked me out for so many past Odyssey House Journals that I thought I had to come and look sharp today. So Randall, I'm showing I, you up. There is a whole generation, and we are going to get to you in a second, but we're going to talk about your parents, who grew up watching Randall on TV, have never seen him without a coat and a tie. That's right. So I'm, I'm liking this. I, now I've, I've worked at Odyssey House for the last year and a half, and every time I have to go to an event and put on a tie, I put it around like this and I'm looking in the mirror and I sort of forget how to tie a tie, which is good. That, yeah. that shows you're living life well yes, when you don't have does. to. Well, today's show, first of all, if you haven't watched before, Odyssey House Journals is a talk about addiction here in Utah and how it affects people and how... <clears throat> there are answers out there, and we've had a chance through our first 13 shows to interviews and meet some amazing people who have great stories to tell. And prove that recovery is always possible. That's and now, since you retired from the news business, you're at Odyssey House, and you are a happy, happy man. I'm extremely happy. No hard deadlines, no, okay, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and, I, and when we get done with the 10 o'clock news, at a TV station, it's like, hey, let's all go to the bar. At Odyssey House, which is a treatment center, obviously our people don't all say, let's go to a bar. So, if they did, it wouldn't be a great well, treatment well, center. I agree. And so it's a lot easier to maintain my sobriety working where I am. So. And Randall, one of the things I've learned through doing this show with you is that sobriety and drug abuse, alcohol abuse is a much bigger factor in Utah than I would have ever expected. I know, you'd think we're a conservative state, we wouldn't have these problems, but you know, it, it transcends all religious, family, socioeconomic lines. I mean, people, and, and that's why people are embracing the problem now, I think, because it's, it's your mother, it's your father, it's your son or daughter or brother or sister or cousin or aunt or uncle, and, and, and it's happening across all, all, all lines, really that people are dealing with it. And it, the, I think the important thing that we're trying to branch out in this podcast is to is not just talk about Odyssey House, although I'd like to do that all the time, but, uh, but to talk about everybody involved in recovery. And that's why I invited Reshma Arrington to be with us today. She's an assistant professor of health and wellness at Utah State University Extension Service. And when you think of Utah State Extension Service, you think of perhaps 4-H or something like that. I was thinking agriculture. I went yeah, there, Rashma. Yeah. I will yeah. admit that I was wrong. So, Reshma, why are you here on this podcast today representing Utah State Extension? Well, you're not totally wrong. Um, Extension has been traditionally with 4-H and a lot of agriculture, but... Um, you didn't bring any farm animals with you they're today. They're in the car. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Yeah, we've got the barbecue going in back, I guess. Okay. <laughs> They'll stay in the car. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, no, our dean, Dean White, really saw a push for Utah State University for extension to expand its programs in you know health and wellness, but also in substance use because it's something that's hitting our state really hard. And one of the goals for extension is that our community um, be respected as forever students. So if we're not giving um, one leg that they need in, in the sense of health and wellness, are, are we giving them everything? So 
Um, it, it is a new initiative. I'm on a team of five other, um, of five professors that work on this and we're spread throughout Utah and more of the hard hitting areas like Carbon and Emory and Cache, Salt Lake County. And we try to just be as helpful as possible with providing um, evidence-based research to our community on substance use. And then we do trickle into some other um, tied in relations like suicide prevention, mental health as well. And I asked you on the phone when we were going over this, I said, so what do you, okay, that, that all sounds very good, but what specifically do you do? What do I do? Right. So. Uh, Other than look pretty in a podcast. Okay. It's the hardest. Well, we, we've never recorded this for TV before until you came. Okay. We, we decided we had to up our game a little bit. Um, yeah, I get that question a lot. I've only been on my position at my position for less than a year. So going into different um, community centers and providing classes, one um, I like to provide overdose prevention courses. Um, a colleague of mine is a former EMT and he provides naloxone training. Um, I also provide naloxone training. Um, we put together large collaborations. Um, my, I would say my proudest thing that I do is when I meet somebody who doesn't know anything about this whole situation, whether they're affiliated um, through a friend or themselves or they just don't know what it is, you know, I, I have like all these names and phone numbers and emails to provide to that person, get in touch with them because there's help out there. Um, and so what I actually do is I walk around as a human phone book. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty unique. <laughs> well, they had, in this situation, were you surprised at the extent of not only sus substance abuse, but specifically opioid abuse in Utah? Yes. Um, it's like how you say, we come from a really conservative state, so you don't expect these things to happen. Honestly, it ran through my family, and I looked at it like as a personal thing that our family has this one issue, but it's an anomaly because Utah is just such a wholesome state. But really seeing it at the level I've seen it, I mean, I, we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be surprised. But then again, we should all feel pretty empowered to take care of it. Like, you know, we all have to deal with allergies and we should all be equipped with dealing with this. So. Well, that's interesting that Utah State University is coming to the forefront on this push <clears throat> because I haven't heard of other academic institutions yeah, this is the first I've heard of this, and I and and I've I've met Reshma at, at some other groups that are involved in this, and and it, uh, it, it I was surprised at first too because and, and then when Reshma contacted me, it was like, what, what, how come you're coming to these meetings and what are you doing? But I, it's really to be commended, but it also shows that everybody in our state is taking a stake in this issue and trying to do something better. But what's interesting was you, when you come at it from an academic background, it probably opens up the message to people that might have a closed message. So for instance, on this show, we have lots of people involved in addiction, alcohol abuse, who are, most of us are alcoholics or have had drug issues or drug addicts. And maybe the message isn't warmly received 
from those of us who have been out there. Whereas coming from an academic, it is much pure, much more intellectual, much more legitimate. Yeah. Have you found that to be the case? We, we trust her more than we trust you or me. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're, you and I are in TV. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Well, I haven't been in academia for a long time, so I wouldn't know a good comparison. I would say I'm warmly received because what I think matters most to people in recovery or people who have substance use disorder is that you're willing to listen to them or you're willing to talk about it. And so just by showing up, I'm already well, well received. Um, I would say that a lot of people question what's USU doing here. Um, but I think people are just happy that more people are getting involved, more larger entities are getting involved. Um, actually, uh, the U does do a lot. Um, I'm not sure if BYU does a lot, but the U definitely has a lot of um, academia focused on this. They do a lot on pain medication. Um, and I know they have wonderful courses in social work. And, yeah. And a lot of people that we've met who have been had an addiction issue, they've gone back in. Once they've gone through recovery and they want to make this their life's work, they go up and they'll get an additional exactly. degree up at the U. And yeah. can't say enough. And obviously... University of Utah, a great institution. Right. But it's really interesting that Utah State, and the cool thing here is that people have, are shocked at how many Utah State alumni live just yeah. in the Salt Lake area. It's, it's true, yep. So you, just by your association with the university, with Utah State, mm -hmm. provide a lot of legitimacy. And Yeah, we just go out in the community. A lot we, of horsepower, I guess, would be what another yes, way to put it. Yes, physical or cow power. power. Or yeah. <laughs> Manure power. So. <laughs> You, you said you told me that you you speak at some high schools. Yes. I'd be curious what kinds of questions you get from high school students when you're talking about the opioid epidemic. Oh yeah. So when I talk to high schoolers, I typically open up with the personal story I have, and that gets I I think it gets kids to kind of just like relax a little, and. Uh, you know, maybe in their head they're just like, okay, so she knows she's had this happen. A lot of the questions are, so if, you know, my parent or my brother's best friend is going through this, where should I go? And sometimes I wonder when the, when the distance becomes much longer, like how close of a friend is this or is this you? So sometimes the, the questions range, but it makes me feel that there's still so much stigma for that kid to not sure. openly ask the question that would help him or her. And um, yeah, most of the questions are, you know, my cousin's friend's neighbor has an issue. <laughs> sure. You know, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, it, how, it's how do How do kids get to opioids when they're younger? Is it their mom and dad's closet? I mean, uh, medicine cabinet, uh, how are these yeah. found? It's a plethora of reasons. Um, you have a lot of kids that might be in some sports and you know they sprain their ankle or something and then the doctor prescribes the an opioid um, and they, the, the, the child becomes you know very reliant off of it and um, in a way is addicted to it but really just wants to fulfill that craving. Um, otherwise, we've heard of um, Keeping pills in the house isn't a very good idea because 
can easily be found, used, stolen, whatever. So there are a few different ways. I I find that kids, youth, high school age kids are the hardest to talk to about how did you get into this? Um, who put you here? Because, I mean, no one wants to rat anybody out. There's shame involved. Um, they don't want to get in trouble. Um, and so sometimes I like to focus on where you are now and what can we do to help you. So, Is um, there a realization when you're 16, 17 that you have a problem with pills? Or my guess would be that pills are just a component of things going... Obviously, there's a ton of underage drinking. I mean, that is regardless of what state the, you're in. And the goal is to get high, and I'm sure they get high on, on these pills. Sure. You know. And But do people, do these kids come to realization that they've got a problem, or does it just seem kind of ethereal? That I think that our kids today face a lot of trauma. That in our, our definition of trauma is ranging, and it's just getting bigger and bigger. So I think kids... Are coming to this realization that they have more burdens to deal with than you know my generation or anybody else's or mine back in the 1920s yeah exactly and well, you know the, the horse-drawn carriage <laughs> yeah. transition to a car was yeah, tough right. exactly <laughs> Randall has a he can, a lot, a lot he more can drive a four-wheel yeah you know trailer <laughs> I, I believe it I've seen yeah. it so, um, yeah I think that the kids are just they're realizing that life is asking more of them and it's not fair and if they're getting into the world of any kind of substance i think that they're realizing that they're in this world maybe they do have a problem but i think kids are realizing that they had some sort of trauma well before that substance use has started and so um you may you get kids that just like to experiment i've been there and I mean, there was a moment where I said to myself, do I want to make this my life or do I want to pass my AP test, you know? <laughs> but, like, if I chose to do the AP test, you know, that's an that's an immense amount of stress. I don't think they do AP tests anymore. <laughs> so people might not know what I'm talking well, about. Advanced placement tests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I... I think if we're going to try to prevent anything, we're, we need to talk to kids well before the substance use begins and admit to the kids that you might be facing. What grade would you think it would be smart to start talking to kids about that? So I know that um, the Botvin Life Skills has been bought by the Utah State Board of Education to put in schools. And they're starting, I believe, as early as eighth grade. And it's to help um, students um, just how to face d um, dangerous questions, how to approach them, how to, you know, experiment, say no to experimentation. If you say yes, what are their, you know, what are, what's going to happen then? So it's more like life skills rather than just substance use lessons. I, I had a request, uh, and we're going out next week, uh, for an Odyssey adolescent residential client to go out and speak to a group of fifth and sixth graders at a West Side Elementary School uh, because so many of them, their older siblings are involved in gangs and they're exposed to drugs and, and the availability of drugs all the time. And, and it's part of their vocabulary already in mm -hmm. fifth and sixth grade. And that, that seems much more realistic because at 13, yep. I know, and again, yeah. many years ago, but 
there was a lot of drinking around at the age of 13, yeah. growing up in That's Detroit. That's where I started. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, literally, and that was, and pot and everything else, right. so it's right. it's out there, and, and depending on the community, and again, this, you talk about the West Side, and certainly a huge gang problem. And I don't mean to stigmatize, stigmatize the, sure. the West Side, but it's just where we were asked to speak, right. so. And right. our neighbor, I saw her and a friend the other day with a box of wine, and she's 17, and, and I didn't know how that. To, I, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Exactly. I really didn't, and I knew what I should have said, right. and I didn't do it. Yeah. Right. How and much time do we have left? Because I, I'm wondering if we could get her to just share her personal story and her family side. How much? Let me. About nine minutes. Nine minutes oh, left. Oh, yes. That, it's plenty of time. And the, and what I found interesting is you said how certain cultures deal with the issue of substance use disorders. And you, with an Indian background, it's, could you share that? Yeah. So, I have, um, <clears throat> my background's Indian, and if any Indian's listening, they'll probably know my mom and tell them that I said this, <laughs> and I'm sorry. So don't, but... <laughs> don't tell her mom, okay? Um, yeah, in Indian culture, or in South Asian culture, um, mental health disorders, substance use, suicide that's all considered you know a fault of the self that you are not deemed you know fit for higherness um and it's something is it have to do with a caste system i would have i mean i think some people could put it on that in like old country type talks but i think that it's just so part so of you're the not culture worthy to go to the next wherever it is we're going well, I think you're just not worthy of achieving stuff, okay. not worthy of having opportunities. So it's not a disease, it's a choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it's hard. You see a lot of people in India that are homeless that have, that suffer from some sort of mental health disorder. And you just, you look at that person, if they were placed in the United States, you know, we have schools, specialized schools that can help them. We have um, treatment centers that can help them. And we give second chances. And I think places like India are moving towards that. But the culture um, in, in individual families is still there where we tend to blame the self. Um, or we don't talk about it. Um, if you have that one family member that's suffering, you just, that's the child you don't talk about. So... Just like the old times here in America. Yeah, too. It, and yeah. what's scary is that I do meet some families here that have no Asian descent, and they still treat it like that. You know, it's still the child they don't talk about. Um, but again, we here in the U.S., we're so lucky that we have ways to provide second, third, and fourth opportunities and chances. But you know, let's give it to these people. They need it, and we need it. Um, we had an uncle in the family that um, was an EMT and developed um, an addiction to opioids because, you know, the, the literal lifting the bed into the car, into the truck, caused back pain. Um, and that later led to heroin. Um, it was a struggle for decades. And eventually, this uncle with a very sound mind decided to commit suicide and you know on his death certificate it says death by suicide but we all know it wasn't suicide that killed him it was this life struggle 
with substances. And as much as, like, he was an EMT, so he, he focused he his knew. life. Yeah, and he gave to people in when they had a crisis. And so I like how you brought up earlier that this could hit anybody. Yeah, it could hit, you know, when we call 911, he was, my uncle was the first one to show up, and it could even hit him and kill him. So, yeah, it could hit anybody, and if it could hit anybody, we should talk about it. So... Well, and it's interesting because on this show I learned so much about the opioid crisis, and it's a situation where no one gets up in the morning and said, you know what, I want to injure my back. Right. I want to go to a doctor and get a prescription for oxys and become addicted to them, then not be rewritten oxy prescriptions and go out and buy heroin and snort it and then start shooting. You That's, didn't, you no didn't one say, says that You didn't morning. say that this morning? I did not. I didn't either. Did and, you? I was thinking about it, but I was hungry, so I had breakfast okay. instead. But it is so, it's grabbing people that have no, the stories right. are tragic. Yeah. And we're getting awareness. And I was down at IHC visiting a friend for a couple days in a row. And IHC, everywhere you go, at the hospital, opioid warnings and all that. Up until a couple of years ago, this was yeah, not yeah. the case no. at all. No, no. Yeah. Before I was, if I'm the doc and you're the patient, you need another script written here, here, here. And in nice. Europe, they don't use oxy. No. You, you have procedures that yeah. we have, and they give you some Advil. Yeah. Right. Which, well, and and having, you know, on the other hand, having had a new shoulder put in, you you want that pain reliever for when you need it, but getting off is a hard thing. And I was err on the side because of an alcohol issue too use as little as possible mm -hmm. but it's a concern sure it is a concern um and there are a lot of tragic stories out there and hopefully they motivate people to change but there are a lot of really positive stories too you know one thing that's hard about opioids is that some people need them so we can't just get rid of them you know and they've actually helped a lot of oh. people and for the people that they helped and then didn't help you know, there are good stories of people getting recovery, and there are bad stories of trying 15 different types of recoveries and treatments, and one might have stuck at the very end. So I hope that it's not always the tragic story that motivates people, but it's the positive stories of struggle, struggle with the, the disease, struggle finding the right treatment, struggle with shaming somebody in their family or whatever it is. I hope that motivates people because... At the end, there's always a light, um, and Utah's done an amazing job trying to help people get more. We could do better. I know someone's going to listen and be like, no. We haven't, done, haven't, enough. We haven't done enough. And but it's true. We shockingly, haven't. the state of Utah, in some respects, is much more progressive than many other states. Yes. Yeah. We've had some guests on who've done needle exchange mm -hmm. working for the state of Utah government, and that saves hundreds of lives for sure. Maybe it's close to 1,000 or 2,000 lives from um, HIV, Hep C, yeah. and that sort of thing. So we're doing a lot of stuff. In a perfect world, what would you like? Would you want more people to know about Utah State's involvement? What kind of things could you do on a personal level and from Utah State's perspective to help this crisis along? Um, in a perfect world, I would say that recovery centers are everywhere in every community 
there's no stigma or shame that it's next door to you. It's as if it makes home values go up, you know, be like a hospital nearby. There's a recovery center nearby. Um, and I would hope that in a perfect world that anybody needing a bed in a recovery center could get one. That the struggle isn't about getting a bed. The struggle is about your personal journey into that recovery center, not not about the bed and the price and Amen. insurance. I, so. I've said now, because I can voice personal opinions that I don't work in the news anymore. And I really believe, and it sounds very socialistic, so there might be a few people in Washington who disagree with me, but I think every American or everybody who has a drug or alcohol issue that they want to deal with should be able to be admitted to a treatment center regardless of their ability to pay. And, yeah. and I, that would, it wouldn't solve all the problems because you're always going to have people who... It's not a 100% no, solution. No, yeah. but, but that's what we need. You know, and there are, there are waiting lines at treatment centers and there are cost prohibitive issues that people deal with that shouldn't be there because if they, if they recover and they heal and they become part of society, it's a hell of a lot cheaper in the long run, as opposed to incarceration or trips to the ER or anything like that. Uh, and it just, it's a great investment of our resources to provide that kind of situation in society. Yeah. Right. I guess in a perfect world, I would say if we could be Portugal, I, I agree with the Portugal method. What did, what did they do? They took, um, about 10 years ago, they took all of the money that they used to fund enforcing the law on drugs in the they made it zero and took that money to um, helping people get better. Wow. And the DEA might disagree with you. They, no. <laughs> <laughs> they would. And we have a different profit method here. And in watching John Oliver in particular does an HBO show. And mm -hmm. he two weeks ago did a show on an op opioid distributor. And it was shocking. The Sackler family. Yes. yes shocking. And boy, that was I, I just totally eye-opening. I like yeah. her idea. If you get rid of all the funds to fight the war on drugs and you turn it all into treatment and help for people, you'd have billions of dollars, I guess. Oh, probably. Yeah. More than that. Well, we this has been a very fast half hour. Thank you so much. We're yeah. going to put your contact information up on the screen. Okay. So if you'd like to get in touch with the folks at Utah State and have a chance to have you come out and talk to a group and, and talk about it from a little bit more academic standing. Uh, if you missed it, her name is Reshma Arrington. Okay. It's a hard name to spell. No, not really. It's right here on the screen. Yeah. And uh, Reshma's phone number is there as well as her email address. So please reach out. And I think that any group that had you come talk, would be the meeting would be better for it. And if you've got some questions about addiction, about alcohol abuse, about anything related to this topic, we have the Odyssey House number at the bottom of the screen. Call and talk to any of their people. While they are a treatment center, they are also informational. And if you want to talk to Randall directly, ask for Randall because he has been I'm in the, the trenches. there every day. Yep. So. And uh, love and life and dressing up very nicely. And, and we can, well, thank you. I, this you is know, the only week you'll see me like this. Cause well, I, I, on I, the inside of that jacket, it says property of Channel 13, Channel 4. Channel I, 4. Yeah, excuse me. I, I stole wrong. it from Channel 13. No, okay. no. <laughs> it's mine. Good for you. Yeah. But anyway, if you have questions, I'm 
a recovering alcoholic, Randall's in the same boat. We are doing this just to give back to the community. We feel very strongly about this. And uh, if you get a chance and you have some issues, you've got a friend, family, yourself, call a number. Once you've got a problem and you are handling it by yourself, it can be insurmountable. But when you call someone else, you're sharing that problem, and it's amazing. And uh, She's helping people share it. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. So thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everyone.